0: The thing is, I'm talking about a way of living, which is inwardly satisfying. Some people can perform functionally incredibly well. You see, so what what I'm saying is that there is a way of living, which once you discover it and you learn how to live it, the quality of your experience becomes lighter.
1: Welcome to Ultra Habits, here, We go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutia and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living.
2: Hey guys, it's RJ Singh here from Ultra Habits and we are introducing our 20th and final guest for season one of the Ultra Habits show, my friend, my mentor, and my teacher, Bede Draper. Now, Bede is not world famous, but in my view, he should be. The man deeply impacts everyone that he comes into contact with. Now, you guys know me. When I say someone is a mentor, I do not take that word lightly. The man has truly impacted the way I live life. Now, Bede and I met a few years ago. Coincidentally, it was a 6 a.m. flight to Melbourne. I am a horrible flyer at the best of times, and I usually am not talking to anyone at 6 a.m. But they put me in the back of the plane next to this man who is reading a book by Meister Eckhart. And for some reason, for some reason, I still do not know today, and we talk about this in the conversation, I ask him a deeply profound question, and without hesitation, he gives me an answer. For the next hour, we embark on a deeply profound conversation, and since that day, he has been a dear friend and teacher of mine. Now, the conversation is all about the transformation of our psychology and how Western psychology doesn't necessarily have the answer and Bede has a unique way of blending philosophy, Eastern religion, Western religions, In he infuses it all to teach individuals how to relate to the world in a much healthier way. Now his teachings are deeply existential, meaning They're not about concepts, they're not about thoughts, they're about being and relating to the world in a certain way that changes our psychology. It is quite disruptive in terms of the traditional way that we view mental challenges and mental illness and depression. And it's a conversation that we really wanted to have. I've been wanting to get Bede on the show, but given it's mental health week, men's mental health week, and Bede has a particular focus on men, I just felt the stars were aligned and it was a right time to bring them on to the show. So I really hope you enjoy this deep conversation. It is complex at times, it's extremely simple at times, and I go much more personal in this conversation given the relationship I have with Bede. I really hope this information, this conversation, the insights that you get from this interview really hit home for you and like always we're really keen for your feedback okay from here we're going to be closing out season one we're going to take a month or so off to focus on season two until then we'll have content released we'll still be contactable but again hope you enjoy this episode peace out
1: today i would like to welcome episode 20 guest a wonderful friend Mentor teacher, Bede Draper, to the Ultra Habits Show. Welcome, Bede.
0: Okay, thank you very much. It's glad to be here.
1: And before we kick off into what we're going to be talking about today, I wanted the opportunity to set some context. So, Bede, you may not remember, but the way we met was very strange. It was a cold morning. I think it was a 6 a.m. flight to melbourne i'm not a great flyer i have the anxiety at the the best of times and i get on the plane and i sit next to this dude and i look next to me and generally that you know in the morning i don't talk to people i'm big grumpy and i look next to you and you're reading this book i kind of glance at the cover i don't want you to know that i'm looking at what you're reading and it's meister eckhart and and i know instantly you know what you're into and for some bizarre reason, a question comes to me, and I, to this day, don't know why I've asked you that question. I asked you that, uh, I referred to the book of Genesis, and I said something to the effect of, in the book of Genesis, when it says, it starts off with, I am, is that, is that statement, and does that statement mean that God is either everything or nothing? Nothing. I have no idea to this day why I asked you that question. And you thought for a split second and you said, yes. And um, that kicked off our our relationship a few years ago. So it's been an interesting journey and I've learned a hell of a lot. And now I'm ready to take your wonderful teachings to my community. Really good. Okay. So. Um, Another interesting uh, thing is that this week is Men's Mental Health Week, and I know that you focus a lot on general mental health, but you do have a particular focus on the challenge of the modern day man. So I think it's quite interesting that we're having this conversation today. So today we're going to be talking about the transformation of our psychology, right? So that's a that's a big statement, and we're going to unpack that throughout this show. So, before I jump into the material, B, can you give us a bit on your background, your your training, and what you've been doing the last forty or fifty years?
0: <laughs> All right. So, um, well, as a young fella, I was studying to be a Roman Catholic priest. Uh, and that's where I got particularly interested in psychology and I got interested in philosophy and, uh, and spirituality, I suppose. And then um, I uh, came to Sydney and then I uh, just started a business. And then I, I then resumed my academic studies. I did a master of applied science, which I completed in 1999. And I also did various uh, postgraduate courses in different forms of Western psychotherapy. Um, and then uh, to cut a long story short, when I was about 56, I was overread, but I, was, I thought I always had the impression that I was sort of smart. But how come if I was so smart? why am I so miserable? Why, why do I? Why do I have an angst, an unrelenting angst that seems to hum in the background? And so, I sort of thought that you know, I sort of come to a crisis point in my life where I thought, you know, what, what's what's happening? What's what's wrong? And then, by as chance would have it, I came across an Eastern teaching called Vedanta, but particularly a particular person who's who taught Vedanta. His, his name was Swami Dayananda. And what, uh, what surprised me was his psychological insight. It was just truly remarkable. And I thought, i got to get in front of this guy. So my wife and I packed up and uh, went to India. And I studied with this man for 14 months. And I'd also given up before this. I'd given up any form of practicing psychotherapy because I felt it was like the blind leading the blind. So then I spent 14 months with this remarkable mind who clarified so many things, particularly the issue of human suffering and how to resolve it. And then I said to this man, I said to him, this guru, I said to him, well, when I go back to Australia, I'm going to systematize your work. I'm going to, I'm going to create a form of life coaching and psychotherapy based on your teachings. And so I've spent the last four years working rather intensively at that and working out different issues with that that concern. And And so now it's fairly much in a very good working order, if you like, and it can be communicated to Western people because it's not only just Diananda's teaching. I bring to this approach of life Aristotle and a person called St. Thomas Aquinas, so the very traditional philosophy of our West, Socrates, etc. And And the teachings of Freud. I, the, uh, the teachings of Freud uh, can be looked at in a certain light. I'm not saying everything he said, but there were certain things that he said that are extremely relevant to us as human beings. And I decided that my main emphasis was going to be working with young men in from say about 24 to about 45 and just, just be can I just jump in there yeah
1: you're a very learned man I mean I haven't met as many I haven't met many people as learned as you what what gave you an indication that this man had some form of solution when you hadn't met him yet because I'm, you had read thousands of books before that, no doubt. Like, what was it about his material that you felt was different? Like, how did that impact? How did well, you know because, that?
0: Well, because I, I started to, I started to under, as I began to understand what he was saying from his books, and I also used to email him and get emails back, hmm. I started to find changes happening in my life. That's what gave me the appetite and like real changes, you know, not just, you see, I was a little bit of an intellectual. I consider myself a recovering intellectual because we can get really in our heads. You see, we can, you see, Diananda didn't unfold a theory of psychology. He unfolded what our psychology actually is. So he unfolded it so you could clearly see the psychology in your own life that was operating in your own life and how to approach it, that whole issue. So that was what was different. If and in terms of, of our Western um, way of looking at it, it was it was basically a very existential approach. In, in other words, He unfolded an understanding that you could actually live, and in the living of it, you find yourself being different.
1: So, it had nothing to do with belief per se.
0: No, absolutely not. He didn't, he he didn't, he knew that I wasn't religiously a Hindu. What he did was he gave me a, he helped me see my life in a clear and undistorted way. That's basically, and also an approach to my life where I could respond in the best possible way to my very practical
1: aspects. Now, I I wanna focus on, because for us to have a meaningful conversation that impacts the audience, we first have to articulate what the problem is because we need to assume Ah. that many out there don't actually know what the problem is. So when you went to India, what did you learn about our condition? And I know that you talk about fundamental dissatisfaction. Can you unpack that?
0: Yeah. It's a very interesting thing. In the West at the moment, everything's positive. There's positive spirituality and there's positive psychology and there's being your own person and being outstandingly successful and all of this sort of stuff. And the problem is with that is that for Swami Dayananda, our fundamental problem was a sense of self-dissatisfaction. I hate being the way I'm like and fear. And the thing is that this fear is so intense because, you know, we can die tomorrow. It's so intense, we deny it, actually. We're not, we're not even aware of it. But what we are aware of is the compulsiveness of human life, where we find ourselves compulsively doing things that don't help us or compulsively not doing things that do. It would help us. And so for Swami Dayananda, you, we had this uh, human beings suffer from a fundamental self-hatred, actually that they're trying to compensate for. So for example, have you ever seen someone wanting to be outstanding and presenting themselves in the most magnificent way? I do it all the time. Didn't of course, that. we're all skites. But the thing is the, <laughs> the art of social life is that we have to skite in such a way that we're not obvious about it. Because if we ever see someone who's sort of skiting but we can notice their skiting, we become highly critical of them. Dr. Freud calls this projection. Because we see, because what happens is we are critical of them because when we're critical and we have this urge to criticize other people, it is simply because in ourselves we can feel the, the burden of guilt has taken off us. We don't feel bad. Other people are bad and defective. And when we're looking at their faults, we feel good in ourselves. Can I ask you a question on that?
2: Yeah.
1: Why are we obsessed with famous people or inspirational people? What is it? I, I, I think it may be the, the other side of the coin in regards to what you're talking about, but where does this obsession come with famous people? or yeah, people The whole or...
0: admiration thing? Yeah. I tend to believe what Freud thought about that is disguised form of envy. We want to have what they've got. And then we just think, oh, they're just magnificent.
1: Because I was talking with an entrepreneur about this who said to me, he goes, people won't support their family members that are trying to get a business off the ground. They're well and truly ready to shoot them down. But they'll sit there and gloat and pontificate about how wonderful some celebrity is that they don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. And we, we were reflecting upon why people do that, why we we tend to not support or bring down those close to us. And at the same time, we tend to hold strangers and famous people in some kind of light, like they're gurus, like they've got magical qualities about them. Yes. And I when, sense
0: it, it's- when in actual fact, they're just an ordinary human being. We live in a very competitive culture. And so what moves us psychologically are often four things. First thing that moves us is jealousy. I want to be like you. I want to be in your shoes. Then we ramp it up and it becomes envy. I want to have what you've got. Then it gets even worse. Rivalry. I want to beat them. And finally, malice. I want to destroy them. Of course, we do this with a face of innocence. But have you seen people criticize others behind their back? Engage in character assassination of other people. Have you ever seen that? It's ubiquitous, isn't it? So often what happens is people don't, people are aware of the fact that they might enjoy finding fault with other people, but they're completely unconscious of the feeling of self-hatred, the feeling of being bad and defective. But when they're actually so they have this desire and urge to find fault with others. They're on the lookout. They're on the lookout. What faults can I find? Because it defends them against this fundamental sense of i there's something wrong with me. That I feel bad in myself. But that's unconscious. However, what's evident is the compulsion to find fault, to be judgmental, to be harsh on others. So you
1: talk about a radical transformation is required to address this condition.
0: Yeah. What does that mean? Okay, well, as human beings, emotionally, we're moved. Even the word emotion in Latin means E out, to move out, you know, to be moved. So, for example, when I'm moved by envy, I might, for example, rubbish someone or put them down. Oh, look at that, you know, he's... You know, whatever it is, you know, I will pull people down, for example. So I'm being moved, aren't I? But I'm being moved to talk or to act in relation to other human beings in a harmful way, aren't I? So to attack another human being, particularly this talking behind people's backs. St. Thomas Aquinas, he considered it a very serious sin. He called it whispering, where where you seek to deprive people of the friendship of others. So when, when we are moved by to act in such a way and we go with this movement and we attack others, say for example, behind their backs, or when we are constantly trying to put ourselves up and to, to, to win the game against other people, when we're being moved by that, that has certain results. But there's a fundamental problem. See, when we look at the word transformation, Trans means across. So it means you're being in one form here and transformed into being another form here. In other words, we're talking about the discovery of what is truly good. How do I live a good human life? If I'm a man, how do I be a good man? Now, I know in these days, the word good is a little bit hackneyed and not even used. It's considered a little bit pooey. But I think people deep down know inside what i mean by someone who is good because we have examples in our culture like martin luther king for example we know that they stood for something and they died for it and we there's something in our hearts that recognize that that was a man who was truly good do you see what i mean so the same way so when we're when we're looking at the transformation of a human being we're looking at we're looking at We're not looking at what's inside their mind. We're looking at being in a certain way of being in the world, a certain manner of being myself and relating to other people in the world. It's a manner, a way of being. Right? Notice that when I'm being moved by hostility or envy or I'm being moved by my unhappiness, that's one form of being, isn't it? Not very happy because you see, The only way to be happy is to live happily. And so I have to discover what does it mean to live happily? Now, have you ever, RJ, in your life, have you ever talked harshly or cruelly to another person? All the time. Even people you care about? All the time, yeah. Right. Now, when you do that, you notice how there's a feeling of regret and remorse. Now, what this indicates is actually not negative, what it indicates if you didn't have a desire if you didn't have goodwill active in you in other words willing the good of others you wouldn't feel the regret and remorse but when you are moved by the by goodwill which is intrinsic to a human being it might be buried that's true but if it if it can if goodwill can come alive in a human being so that the person actually has actually has the feeling of wanting, wishing well towards others. Hey, if you notice that when you feel it, when you're full of that feeling of goodwill, do you notice that you act in good ways? Mm-hmm. Do you notice that? Mm-hmm. So when I'm being moved by goodwill, because it's a core striving in me as a human being and I conform my actions to it, there's a sense of fulfillment, real fulfillment, not an ego buzz, but living, living in the right way, living in a way that actually is, is good, that is helpful, that is constructive, that doesn't harm people. Believe it or not, that has a profound effect of our heart. So are you saying that a,
1: a significant cure to mental health issues. And I'm not talking about like pathological issues. I'm just-
0: No, talking we're not talking about, about schizophrenia or psychosis. No, talking about you know general
1: unhappiness. Yep. Is the way that we act and conduct ourselves in the world then changes our psychology. It's not about waiting to feel a certain way And then be a certain way.
0: No, what I'm saying is that in order to arrive at happiness, we have to live happily. We have to live harmoniously with ourselves, harmoniously with others, and harmoniously with the world. That doesn't mean like what's happening, but not be in a sort of a fighting attitude, not fighting ourselves, not fighting Others are not fighting the world. Have you ever been really pissed off and angry? Yeah. Do you know that kind of fighting feeling? Mm-hmm. There's something in us that doesn't really like that. We, it feels good at some level. The problem is when we dramatize hostility by acting it out, what we're doing, we're going against this core striving of goodwill within us. And we can never feel, we can't feel happy in ourselves, if we're not living happily. And so, basically, if I'm feeling unhappy, that is an instruction to look at my life, and it's an instruction, something telling me the way I'm living isn't. I'm not obviously not living the right way, because if I was living the right way, the fruits of living the right way is what Aristotle called happiness. It meant excellence. When I'm living excellently. The more excellently I live in terms of not harming other people Mm. and being constructive, the more happier I become so that Mm. what people don't often see is there is a direct, there is a hidden connection between how they live their life on a moment-by-moment basis, all the little actions they do every day and the quality of their mind or experience. Well, they, they tend to, in
1: today's society... We tend to attribute our happiness to external events and external drivers. What you're saying is it's completely internal.
0: It's it's how, it's how the problem is centered on you as a human being. It, the problem isn't external to you. So one of the things that you talk about,
1: and I think to give greater context, and I would suggest, and you may say I'm wrong, that to arrive at a place where we're able to live happily, we have to have a certain relationship with reality. Could you unpack the whole piece around, and I guess this relates to our fundamental problem or the human condition, but what is this whole piece on how our perceptions are often misplaced. And maybe you can articulate it through the, the, the lovely story of the snake and the rope. Because I think, I think to, to, to give, for, for an individual to live happily, they have to be able to be with themselves irrespective of, of whether they're in storm or sunshine. And for them to be able to do that I would suggest there would have to be some grasp on reality. And I think you're teaching via the snake and the rope, which really outlines, I, I feel a, a major part of the human condition is quite relevant.
0: Okay. But can we just go, just track back a little bit into what you said before? Yeah. Fundamentally for Diananda, the most important issue was is freedom. What does it actually mean to be free while I'm living this functional life? To be free. Now, so what happens is I'm always facing events, aren't I? I'm always facing four types of categories of experience. I'm having an experience that I like. I'm having an experience that's more than what I like. I'm having an experience which I don't like. And I'm having an experience of the opposite to what I like. Now, This is never going to change. In my human life, doesn't matter what the success gurus tell you, you are always going to be facing experiences you like, more than what you like, not what you like and opposite to what you like. Now, if when that experience happens, if you suddenly praise me and say, Pete, I think you're just a wonderful guy. Really? You think I am? And I suddenly become inflated like a peacock, right? Am I being free or am I being determined by an external thing? Totally determined. My way of being is actually simply a reaction, a blind reaction. In this case, a so-called positive, I feel good about myself feeling, right? Because of what you've said. But next week, guess what you say, beat I think you're a bit of a jerk. <laughs> oh, right? So that's the opposite to what I like. So again... Because you act with me in a rejecting way and I suddenly find myself going to pieces. Is that being free or is it being determined? Being determined. So what happens is normally these four things that are happening are like a, a marionette, like a puppet. They make you feel good, make you feel bad, make you feel good, make you feel bad, make you feel good, make you feel, good, make you feel bad. And what we desperately try and do is we want to get rid of, we want to get rid of all of the, the less than what we like and opposite that we like, and we want to have all what we like, and uh, more than what we like. The problem is, the way the world is, that's never gonna happen. You're never gonna happen. That means that if it's true, does that mean that the only way I can be happy is by making sure I get what I want and more than what I like and, 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 and what I like? Or is happiness something that's quite independent of these four things? Because if it's not, Freedom is an impossibility.
1: That's so revolutionary because, I mean, there's throwaway quotes and all the bullshit we hear, happiness is inside you and blah, blah, blah. But what you're giving us is a uh, a, a, a framework that is very clear that when applied to our experiences, we can see how we're an absolute yo-yo
0: on a daily basis. Yeah, Diananda called it an emotional yo-yo. Oh, did he? Yeah. Okay. So what we're wanting, what we're wanting is we're wanting a way of being in the world that comes from us, not being caused by external events. So what is the
1: inhibitors? What, are, what What's the deep human condition which prevents us from doing that? Like, why is it that we are programmed that way or how do we come to be programmed that way?
0: Right, well, that, that that's an interesting point. But we'll just take it slightly, slightly. We'll, we'll, look at, we'll look at what the solution depends upon. <clears throat> to the degree that I can become accepting, that doesn't mean liking, but the fact of being alive to what's happening in front of me with an accepting attitude. So if I can actually accept what's happening in front of me, doesn't mean like to that degree I find myself acceptable mm-hmm. if I'm fighting and resisting and desperately trying to change the world so I can be happy every single minute of the day I will never have any peace because what I'm attempting is I'm trying to make the world in such a way that it never has anything that I dislike or opposite to what I like that's like, have you ever heard of the Greek god Sisyphus? He had a he had, what he he was condemned because of a bad boy. The gods put him in, in eternal hell. He had to roll this big rock up a hill, and he'd just keep going up. He'd just he'd go, oh yes, I'm nearly I'm nearly gonna get it, and it fell down again. Then he'd grab the rock, and he would do it again and again. And every time it come down, it would fall down, and then he'd forget that it failed, and he still have hope that he's gonna do it. Right, So people, have you known the experience of hoping that one day your life, your external life, was just going to be full of things you just like and more than what you like and not have any of the other? Have you ever wanted to pursue something like that? It's never possible. For the rest of your life, you're going to have experiences that you like more than what you like, opposite to what you like or less than what you like. The question is, can you basically fundamentally accept that fact first, come to an acceptance of that fact? How do we do that? Bean? Right. Very interesting point. The whole point with this is that there's a difference between my disliking what is happening and being shattered by it. You see, what happens is, what Diananda says is that people suffer from binding desires. In other words, they have these insistent demands on life that they believe is necessary for them to feel happy and secure. And in our culture, it's material acquisition, material being successful, at material acquisitiveness, greed. I'm not talking about owning material possessions. I'm talking about the greed where, where where I feel fortified as a person if I accumulate more toys than the other people. Hmm. So greed. Power. There's nothing like status and power. So is this all in response to our fundamental dissatisfaction? Yes. Yes, it is because these. There's nothing like position or prestige that gives you a, a sort of a, a wonderful feeling about myself. But what that why it's a wonderful feeling is it protects me against the feeling of I'm a piece of shit. So how do we? Is, are are you saying it's wrong to be driven? No. Well, driven, yes. Diananda made a distinction between ambition because Diananda was a very ambitious guru. He created lots of schools. Even in Harvard, they, look, they actually wrote a paper on, I think it was called um, social entrepreneurship or something. Yeah. So he, he built uh, schools for lots of them. So he considered ambition in the light of goodwill that brings value into the world is an extremely important thing. But when I'm going for status, I'm not really interested in bringing value into the world. I'm interested in valuing myself in a a higher position than others. And let's face it, you can't have a village idiot without a village. Do you think it's possible to be
1: ambitious without feeling the pull of desire for status? And is that a bad thing?
0: Well, Well, first of all, uh, we all human beings, because we're brought up in this culture, will have impulses, emotional impulses towards status, power, and 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 greed. That's not the question. The question is: is that can I live a life so that I can still I can live a life of goodwill and concern? Right. So, so that the whole point is is is, is not what reactions we have in ourselves. We can have any kinds of emotional reactions. What counts is my ability to see what's happening in front of me clearly and in a clear and undistorted way and then being able to respond to it in the best possible way. So you're saying that it's not the issue that human
1: emotions
0: come up. That is not the issue itself. It's whether they move you in such a way that they determine how you see and how you act. Otherwise, they're just a fact to be accepted.
1: What's the mechanism that enables us to accept them as a fact versus get swept away with them?
0: Well, first of all, I have to first of all come to understand the value of living what we would call a good, wholesome, worthwhile, productive life. Living in a worthwhile, constructive way. And this is based on two things. We have an innate striving for two things. We have a striving to be in harmony, to be accepting, to be kind, basically, to express goodwill. We've got a striving that wishes well for people. We also have a striving to take care, to take care of others and ourselves, right? Now, when we satisfy th- those strivings, we feel complete in ourselves because we're living in the right way. There's a feeling of completion. When I, when I am being moved by goodwill, I'm not being so-called positive and trying to have positive thoughts. I just find myself acting kindly, don't I? And and the thing too is thats that, is that When we're we're looking and we're facing life, we need to respond in the best way. We We need concern, the emotional feeling of concern about my life and my life of other people around me. And for example, and this is important because when I've got concern active in me, I will have the urge to act in a way that takes care of myself and others. That's the problem with alcohol or drugs, for example. When the pleasure of drugs or alcohol become more important, the concern can actually stop moving me and then I let my life just go out of control. So when we're talking about, so we're not talking about positive thinking. We're talking about a way of life that is governed by goodwill and concern. Why is positive thinking,
1: and I know you're, you're, you're position on the self-esteem movement what is your fundamental issue with these two forms of um i suppose psychology like where, what's the issue there
0: okay we have this thing called feeling good about myself now that notice how there's two things here. there's a part of me i am feeling good about myself so i've got myself as an object that i'm looking at and i'm going Mm, this isn't very good. And it, like, have you ever felt you're a loser? That's because you have a thought of yourself, I am a loser. And then you're taking your life and being to be that very thought. I am a loser. And then you're looking at it and you're getting upset about it. You see how there's two things there? There's the looker and the looked at. And in this case, I'm feeling bad about myself. If I suddenly make a lot of money this month, I might feel rather good about myself. But it's the same it's it's either ego inflation or ego deflation. In our culture, we consider ego inflation or self-esteem, mental health. That's in for my in my books. That's insane, because the problem is, when you're trying to build up your self-esteem, it's like blowing up a balloon. What happens to balloons, They uh? pop. Yeah, so you're afraid. Whereas, let's have a look at the different thing. Let's say, for example, here I am. I live my life, my life isn't an abstraction. My life is me being in a particular experience and me responding to that experience. Would that be true? Mm-hmm. That's what my life is. Now, if I, if I, have you noticed that when you have a feeling of goodwill, even if people are acting in a ways that are not very helpful or even hostile, do you find you don't get caught up in being hateful and acting and dramatizing hate? Do you find that? Mm-hmm. When you've, so when you're actually governed by goodwill, the fact of the matter is, is that you have this will. I, I, You understand the value of living in the right way. You understand the value of not harming other people or yourself. And because that's expressing goodwill, isn't it? A feeling of goodwill, wishing. We can even wish our, ourselves well. We wish ourselves well. We wish others well. So we... Because of that, we take care of ourselves. We take care of others. And we take care of ourselves. So, when I'm imbued with goodwill. And and I have the dynamic of concern. That's when I'm motivated, aren't I? I'm wholehearted, aren't I? And so, I'm act. I'm acting. I'm. I'm I have a. You could say I have a positive way of life in the sense that it's constructive, and beneficial. It's what Diananda says that. We have to shift from being a consumer. Now, when I'm caught up in self-esteem, give me, give me, give me love, give me, tell, tell me how good I am and tell me that I'm loved and, and tell me that I'm just a wonderful person and no one ever told me that I was a wonderful person. I just need to be told, I'm a, that is six-year-old stuff. Little six-year-olds need to be loved like that and supported. But if you're 23 or 30 or 40 or 50 years old, Diananda says, we don't need love. We need to bring love to our relationships. We need to shift from being a consumer, gimme, 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 gimme. In other words, when we're a consumer, we think the world is a big breast that we we want to suckle from. He said, we've got to shift from being a consumer to a contributor. You've said before,
1: and I love this statement, that Western psychology doesn't have the answer, but Vedanta doesn't have the problem. And I know your view is that certain forms of Western psychology focus on the individual psychology where your approach is much more existential, focusing on, I suppose, a form of ethics. And I know we've talked about stoicism and I know you know quite a bit about it, which is quite popular in today's society because I think people are feeling the results from having a sense of ownership through their actions, being governed by goodwill in a way of life, irrespective of the state of our psychology.
0: right? Yes. What, what we want, what we want is we want a manner of living that we're, so we're living our life. It's what Diananda called self mastery. I'm living, I'm living my life. I'm not, you see, when I'm living a life for fame, for greed and for power, that's not living for my life. That's not my life. That's external values that I've incorporated because I belong to this culture. And I give my life over to that. But when I do, I fall into the abyss of despair, actually. I might be functionally clever. I might gain a lot of ego satisfaction. But in terms of being at home with myself, this fundamental feeling of being at home with myself while I live life will elude me because I'll be too busy violating goodwill and concern. You see, the human problem is this, RJ. When I cease to have goodwill active in me, to that degree I become hostile and and attacking. To the degree that I cease to have concern active in me, I become negligent and I become ruthless. Now, I'll give you an example of negligence. Have you ever, for example, you know, in a relationship with your partner, have you ever found that sometimes you're a little bit negligent? You're not, you don't do, you're not doing what you need to be doing, but because you're not actually doing something, you don't notice that you're being negligent. Correct.
1: I, I can say that our relationship is traveling at its best when I am proactive and conscious yeah. about making her life better and easier.
0: Right. Yes. One hundred percent. That's when. See, when with concern, what happens is when you're concerned, you're actively looking at what's needed to be done, because you you you're moved by the emotion of concern. When that concern drops, you go into a state of negligence. You're not really aware mm-hmm. of the the factors. You're not really aware of what you need to do. <clears throat> so you meet every day. Yeah, hi darling. You know, but you're not really concerned you're not really responding to what's needed like what Diane under calls doing the needful so your life starts to go out of control because it's like you know if I'm driving a car imagine that driving the car on the left hand side is goodwill and the other side is concern right when I let go of that steering wheel what happens I crash and burn So this is a very topical
1: thing. It's men's mental health week. I am continually around men that are bitching and complaining about their relationships. And I have to be careful that when I'm having these conversations that I don't become negative and drawn into it, it seems to be um, proliferated within the men's community, this whole issue with wives and she doesn't understand me and, this that and the other now you said something once very interesting and i'll paraphrase you said something to the effect of our relationships are what's between like you, you yes. said something,
0: can you what i said what i said was that your relationship with your spouse is what you say and do and how you say and do not what, what you think it. not what you think you see I I I failed at two marriages. I failed at my first marriage, and then I failed at my present one. We broke up. We're back together. We're happy now. But what happened was, uh, I when I broke up with my second wife, I was convinced that she was just simply a neurotic such and such, and I felt victimized because I you know I thought it was her problem. Now when I started learning about what Swami Raya was talking about, I found a most amazing thing happened. As I changed my manner of relating to my wife, in other words, I would do, I'd make sure that I do one gallant manly act a day. The feminists might hate me for this, but I would do some gallant act, you know, like, you know, just putting your hand, guiding her through the door. Um, uh, darling, would you like a cup of coffee? Um, So as I started to improve my conduct with her, do you know that my cognition of her improved? That's interesting.
1: That's interesting. Interesting.
0: Where I was, I did not see that because I was acting uncaringly and indifferently and ruthlessly in the end, I mean, no physical violence, but just, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of cruel and Mm -hmm. attacking, you know, just become a mess. But when I, what I didn't realise was that I was building an image of her in my mind every time I did that. I didn't see the relationship between how I was seeing my wife and my manner of relating. Now I know that when I get who are people I work with, if they start, I know that if if what happens between themselves and their wife, or the, or the wife and the husband, if that doesn't change. Nothing changes. I <laughs> heard a
1: guy um, I listen to quite often. He's a, um, uh, a yogi uh, out of LA. And he said, and his wife's a yogi as well. They're an um, interesting couple. And he said, when I start to see my wife's defects, I know something's going on with me. When I start to harp on it, when it becomes that repetitive and it becomes heightened and increased. What would you say to that?
0: Well, that's We, we go back to Dr. Freud and the mechanism of projection. You know, how you said that, you see, have you, have you ever seen in Australia, we have these bitch sessions, don't we? Now that we? We get together and we pick some subject, some scapegoat for our guilt, right? And then we, we just totally sclag the person. Have you ever done this? And it's so enjoyable why is this enjoyable because because we feel self-hating deep down when i'm looking at the defects and the wrongness of others i'm freed it's a defense mechanism do I'm you actually, mean
1: hate in the in the actual
0: accepted use of the wrong like okay right absolutely but it's because it's so horrible and painful it's universally denied so even though we see have you noticed that? Have you not, How often have you seen people rubbish other people? How often does that happen? Daily. That is guilt in action. That's guilt projected, self-hatred projected. You're hating someone else instead of yourself. What does that do for us when we do that? It defends us against being, being anywhere near our own self-hatred. Because when they are the bad ones, we feel so polished, so virtuous, so good. In, fa- in fact, we feel well-nigh omnipotent after a bitch session. Have you noticed that feeling of unbelievable elation, the more you can slag, It's the dark side of human life, actually. The I, fact that because of our self-hatred, we have an urge to find fault and to attack other people. I, I was reading an
1: interesting study in the Harvard Business Review that said gossiping, and doing what you're saying, they believe was potentially linked back to tribal relations, how we actually related with one another in terms of building close bonds and relationships. It's an interesting theory there that- Well,
0: well, well, it is. Well, there is no. There's. There's a certain. Well, what happens is on an individual level, I find fault, but then I can have a collective. We the, we the good, and we're fighting the those the evil. Mm. Do you see what I mean? So, human beings have this tremendous self hatred that they want to a, to be released from the burden of, and the way they do it unconsciously is to find fault with other people. Do you know why we have that?
1: I know that's a big topic, but do you know why we have that self-hatred? Like, where does this come
0: from? Well, if you, if you look at, if you look at, and, I'll, and I'll use a, a metaphor from our Western scriptures, if that's okay. Yeah, you of know, course. Yeah. Don't worry, I'm not going to go religious on you. But... Oh, we
1: have a lot of religious, uh, we have a lot of uh, guests on this show from the, the US, United States South. So it comes oh, up okay. quite a bit. Yeah, don't worry.
0: In, in our <laughs> Western scriptures, they talk about the branch and the vine. And Diananda had a similar thing. When the branch is cut off from the vine, it withers, doesn't it? It, it withers it, because it's it's cut off from the, the, the life-sustaining nourishment. Well, if you can imagine that being yourself, learning what that means, being yourself means being rooted in something real, in reality. That reality... To be rooted in reality is the ultimate nourishment, if you like. But if I if I if I take myself to be a loser, I'm taking myself to be an idea. And then we'll get back to the snake in the rope. Mm. You see, there's a story that the Hindus talk about, right? The Hindu religious scriptures. And they talk about that you're in a dark room, a semi-dark room, and you see a, a rope in the corner, but you think it's a snake and you go, Oh my God! Right? So what happens is. You're not being alive to reality, which is only a rope. You're actually having an experience of a snake, but that experience is untrue. In other words, it's a notion that has turned into an experience that you are having. It's delusional. So, in other words, you're cut off from reality, aren't you? You're not alive to facts. Now this brings us. How, how do we know when we're misperceiving? bead? The... well, and that and this. Well, there's a very simple way. You can bet your boots. Any time that you're in friction or in conflict, you're misperceiving. You're caught up in ideas like, you know, when you. Oh my God, I'm such a loser, right? The fact of the matter is, tell me something, uh, RJ. When I when I'm looking at you. And I'm thinking, are you uh, is the life and being you are my thoughts I'm having about you? No. It's a thought about you, isn't it? Mm. But it's definitely not you, is it? Mm. And so but so if I think that you're just an SOB, you know when I'm angry and I think you're an SOB, I'm not aware that I'm having a thought that you're an SOB, and then that that very thought's turned into an experience like a movie projected. You know, like it's a it's a like the film in the mind, SOB, is then turned into an experience of me having I'm having an experience of you as an SOB. As far as I'm concerned, I'm looking at an SOB, aren't I? Mm -hmm. But that's a thought that's projected as experience, isn't it? Mm -hmm. The same way when we look at ourselves, we go, I'm a loser, I'm I'm no good, I'm pathetic. I'm 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 taking myself to be an idea. Or conversely, I'm wonderful. Same I'm thing. Yeah. Diana believe that any notion you have about yourself, not a functional notion, like I'm good at playing tennis. I'm I, you know. Yeah. But any notion that you have of yourself is a delusion. It's not true. Imagine that you're playing a game of tennis, right? Now, in terms of functional living, playing tennis is good, isn't it? Like, and if you give a good shot, it's highly satisfying to execute a very well-positioned shot when you're playing tennis. Would that be true? Mm-hmm. But then, you see, so, so I can have satisfaction in, in competent functioning. It, it, nature rewards us for competence like that. We, we enjoy competent functioning. Mm-hmm. But what if I go, my God, I did a good shot, which is true and factual, and then exaggerate a little bit more and go, that makes me such a legend in my own lunchtime. I'm so much better than other human beings. What would you
1: say to the movement that's proliferated around the inspirational, visionary, envision yourself, ego inflation to the max, and you'll get there movement? Like,
0: does it serve some purpose? Yes, it'll sell, it'll sell. When you promise the rewards of unrestrained egoism, unrestrained ego inflation, you will become the person you want to be. In other words, everyone has, a, has an idealized version of themselves in their own mind that they would like to be. Is that a bad thing, though? No? A- absolutely, because it's very good to have ends, functional ends. I want a good marriage. I want to relate well. I want to function better. I want to improve my conduct. That's very good. Okay, so improving conduct is a magnificent thing. We need to do it but this whole idea that i'm going to become a wonderful self it's, it, i think it's 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 the most um, destructive form of egoism because if i'm constantly trying to be a good look in my own eyes and the eyes of other people i'm becoming i'm self-conscious aren't i i'm self-conscious i remember a young man was having agree. Tri- you're yeah and i certainly not free. no, and and I, was, I remember telling a, a young fellow who was having trouble with girls. You know he was so nervous. And I said, well, if you try and present like a hero and to be to be approved of, you'll be so scared because then if you if what you're presenting isn't accepted, you'll feel crushed. So I said, so instead of being self-conscious, conscious of myself, how am I coming across? How, how What am I like as an object and are they looking at me as a good object or a bad object? If I shift my attention to what value can I bring to this conversation? What, what reaching out actions can I do? Maybe listen, make sure that I respond to what I'm saying, but I'm not trying to present myself. I'm I'm, I'm interested in being alive to what's happening and responding in the best possible way. So that's an outflow, isn't it? Your method and your model is all about
1: rigorously being rooted in reality. And there's a very little threshold or tolerance for fantasy, really.
0: Human vanity is so tenacious. And because it has a defensive function. You see, if I've got a wonderful view of myself, it protects me against the the horrible view of myself that I've really got. And you're
1: saying that no form and I would agree with this, that no form of ego inflation, I mean, we see billionaires committing suicide. That should tell us something, right? Like, you're saying that no form of ego inflation will ever fully defend us from a potential fall.
0: No, because you see, in Latin, you know what vanity means? Vacuous, empty. That's the root. That's the Latin root for the word vanity, empty. It's puffed up air. Do you see what I mean? Like, for example, if I imagine, if I uh, imagine myself as superior to other people, right? So first of all, I've got, I need other people and and compare myself favorably in order to feel good about myself. That's why, and then I feel the smug self-assurance. Tell me something, when I'm full of myself like that, am I, is there any possibility of me being kind? No. No. And you see, as a human being, what's very important is that I build cooperative and communal bonds with other people. Particularly the most one of the most important bonds is with my spouse and my children. So I want to be able to relate in such a way that I feel build a, a strong feeling of community with my wife and my children, don't I, mm-hmm. or my or husband and children? You see, so that's important. Now is that ego inflating? No, it's satisfying because it, as a human being, I'm a communal. I'm a communal being. So if I'm not communing with others. If I feel superior to others, do I feel a commonality with other people or do I feel a superior disdain? Mm.
1: Yeah.
0: But in the, in this world of heroism now, you know, this entrepreneurial heroism, mm. the thing is this whole desire to be outstanding. I'm not talking about producing outstanding results, bringing value into the world. That's a different thing. When I use my... Entrepreneurial uh, impulses to, for, for in the service of self-glory. In the end, it'll mean nothing. Because when I'm only involved with myself, what happens to my sense of solidarity with other human beings? Mm. I might, one. I might experience a lot of ego satisfaction. Mm. I mean. Power and status is obviously delicious egoically, but is it happiness? No. Is it real happiness? What's been built into us? So, we're born into this culture, and certain values and ideas are built into us the value of power, status, fame, right? All of these are, are built into us. And so, and, and more importantly, when we when particularly by the time we're about six, we've got a fairly clear sense of what we're like as a person, what other, pe- what other people are in relation to us, and what the world is like. And so what happens is, by the time we're six, we have a very strong sense of identity. Now, when I was uh, studying to be a priest, they were talking about a clinical case where a girl was, was, who had a father who beat her up and he was an alcoholic. So when she was 17, she fell in love. She just wanted, you can understand she wanted to get away from that terrible thing. And she wanted to find love. So she met this man, fell in love with him deeply. And in the end, he started to beat her up and and was drinking alcohol. (coughs) So she got rid of him. And then she seeked again to find love. And then she found another love of her life. And guess what? He drank alcohol and beat her up. And this happened for a third time. Now, Dr. Freud was very impressed with this. He thought that this is crazy. You know, this obviously, and he thought it was a death wish. But Swami Dayananda uh, saw it, sees it differently. What happens is, once you're about six years old, you've got a sense of identity that's been formed by interactions with other people. And that sense of identity you now believe to be your life and being. You believe it's your life and being, so now you actually are going to preserve that no matter what, because that's preserving your life. So what she did, and Freud called a repetition compulsion. Have you noticed that we tend to repeat the same types of arguments, the same types of upsets, the same types of relationships? They're ending up the same way, and we and we wonder, well, what's why is this happening? As far as she consciously understood, she was seeking happiness. Can you see that? But unconsciously, she had an appetite for the very same type of interactions that formed her in the first place. So you're saying that we, we
1: seek to reinforce our sense of identity, irrespective of it being positive or negative?
0: Absolutely. Why? Because... Of fear of death. You see, when I take my life in being, how, how, impo- how strong is self-preservation, RJ? Well, it's the it. It's the thing. And the fear of being nothing. Have you ever felt sometimes maybe bored and empty and it's sort of a bit uncomfortable because there's nothing really attracting your attention? Mm. We fear nothingness. We could, we, that's why we have to promote ourselves. The fear of being nothing is incredibly strong. I remember a young kid in my school days his father used to beat him up so when he came to school he would actually deliberately do very naughty things in front of the teacher to elicit the punitive response from the teacher do you think he was enjoying being hit by the teacher no but unconsciously there was a sense of I wanting of wanting to preserve a sense of identity that is the result of conditioning, the conditions that you've been brought up in. Now this is what Swami Dayananda called personality. And 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 you see, if I say to you, "What's your name?" What happens? I give you my person, my name. Yeah, yeah it just pops out. Boom, just pops out. The same way when we look at life, a view of life pops out. Boom life sucks. It's conditioning. The thing is that any generality is always a lie. But if I've got life sucks, that that will color every aspect of my life. Mm -hmm. People can't be trusted. Well, definitely some people can't be trusted. But if I've got that, people can't be trusted. Believe it or not, I'll be seeking to prove to myself that that's true. I'll do stupid things. I might trust people. And then go, yeah, there you go. You can't trust people. Have you ever seen people say to you, yeah, it's, uh, you can't trust people? Have you ever heard them say that? Mm-hmm. And there's a certain kind of like, a, like as if they're enjoying it in a funny way. Mm. They're proving, they're maintaining their world, which is to maintain their identity.
1: So if I could just put this into a... Um, a bit of a, a flow. We have our conditioning, which is the causes and conditions. Yeah. They then f- they then create reactions, which are unconscious.
0: And oh no, creates- that, that way. And but then what happens is, once the personality is formed, the sense of identity is formed.
1: Yeah. We have a compulsion to live it out, and then that dictates the way that we see. And causes Absolutely. the misperceptions and the confusion. Yes. And and that then is ultimately which or what causes us to be unhappy in the world.
0: And yes, and keep on repeating the same types of interactions that are painful, the same types of mistakes, the same types of experiences. It keeps us enclosed in like a box. Do we have to have a grasp or a
1: level of awareness on our particular type of conditioning to be
0: alive to reality. No, no. Well, I'll, exp- I'll just explain that. When I understood that Diananda had solved this particular problem, that's why I went to India because I knew from what I read that he had he had he had a solution to this.
1: That's why For what, I went specifically.
0: That, yeah, he had a solution. To how to resolve that repetition compulsion, to 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 make that false sense of identity disappear. Yeah. So so in your
1: so so many people that listen to the show are executives, they're high functioning, capable people, and their view would be that they have a very strong sense of identity that has served them well. How does that then relate to what you're saying in the sense that a strong sense of identity actually hinders us or is not necessarily a very good thing?
0: If I'm a high-performing uh, uh, entrepreneur who, is, who looks at other human beings in the light of goodwill while I'm high-performing, instead of looking at them as things to be used, there's two different things there. I can be, I can be successful, successful in terms of function, but be a lousy human being. But if, I, if, if my entrepreneurship is high functioning, in other words, I'm, I, I'm, I've got the cognition, cognitive range where I see the important factors of my situation very clearly, I have, the, I have the interpersonal skills necessary to relate to people happily and i have the material skills to do my job and do it well and excellently right and i do that in the light of goodwill then i'm being a real person i'm not being an identity an object to myself but if i am using my entrepreneurial or my high functioning in order to be bigger and better than other people, I'm not saying, I'm I'm not criticizing, I'm just saying that's what happens. Then what happens is I tend to treat people as things, as objects of use. So basically I can, I can, I can be, I can have a very high caliber functioning life and yet my family life might completely suck. My relationships going down the toilet, but I can still maintain a high level of function. What we're looking at here is we're looking at a way of living and we, and in that way of living, we relate to our friends in that living. We relate to our family and our spouse, children in that way of living. We relate to our work people, the people who work for us, for example. So, The thing is, I'm talking about a way of living which is inwardly satisfying. Some people can perform functionally incredibly well. You see, so what what I'm saying is that there is a way of living which once you discover it and you learn how to live it, the quality of your experience becomes lighter. Because you can have a lousy quality of experience even when you're making lots of money and doing steamy well. I think it's important to mention as well, like you had said many
1: a times that Dayananda had no issue with ambition and ambition with goodwill and concern and adding value to the wider community. So it is possible to be functionally excellent and concerned with your functional caliber, yet um live a life where you are um being a good person
0: basically and well doing the right if you, if you think about if you think about how the greeks saw happiness they they the word their word for happiness meant excellence in other words when i am seeing clearly what's happening in front of me and i'm responding in a purposeful and well-directed way that meets the exact needs of the moment that is living excellently. For Aristotle, that was happiness. So happiness wasn't something you're gonna get in the future. It was a natural occurrence that went along with living in the right way. You see, human beings, if we violate our ethical strivings, okay, if we violate our ethical strivings, we suffer tremendously psychologically. It's not a psychological problem. It's an ethical problem. If I, if I, for example, have you ever talked harshly and had an argument with your wife? What happens, what happens to the quality of your experience if you haven't fixed it up and you go to work? Horrible day. Horrible day. Because fundamentally, you went out of harmony with life. You're you stuffed up. You didn't do what was needed. You probably just did what you felt but sometimes following your feelings is a disaster. Following the feeling of goodwill is very good. Following the feeling of concern is also good. Following the feeling to hurt or attack, is it sucks. It's best, best to accept it, but suck it up. Don't dramatize it.
1: Yeah. Very, very good stuff. So I think what we'll do, be is we have covered so much material. There may be a part two coming in the next season. Mm-hmm. Where we'll have to dive even deeper, but I really enjoyed this conversation. It's the first time we've been able to have a conversation like we usually do, but on camera. So it's been mm-hmm. really enjoyable. And I, be, before, before you go, I'd like to ask you, what kind of things can people do to start to come out of the distorted reality and to come into harmonious uh, relation to what really is.
0: Okay, I'll just tell you a story. Yeah. I have a friend of mine who I was talking about what happened in Dresden. And I said the Dresden bombing after the war, and there were mainly old people and children and women and children. And they firebombed the place, so they bombed they bombed the city. Then the ambulances come out, the fire brigades to come out to try and do something, and then they bombed it when that happened. So they killed the ambulance people and the firemen, and then people went to the park and they bombed that. Right, so it was terrible crime. And when I said this to him, because he was English, he said, "But they they did that to Coventry." So what he did was he didn't see another human person. What he saw was an object, a thing, a German. And, and so basically he saw another human being or those people as objects, as things. And because they were evil things, he was completely incompassionate, no concern whatsoever because he was seeing them as a thing. You with me? This was a good guy. now, We need to relate to pre- people as persons, not as objects. So that means that, you know, when you go to the barista, make sure you make contact with a person. Hi, how are you? Don't just go, here, coffee, please. The thing is that make, make it a communal act, an outgoing act, and make sure that you communicate to every human being in this manner in the light of goodwill and concern and notice when you don't, and you'll notice when you don't, when you commit to this, you notice how often you fall away from goodwill and concern, but just on a daily basis, understand that your act, your life consists of little daily acts that you make every day. And you're either building up a quality of mind, a quality of being, which is lighter, happier, more fulfilling or you're building up unknowingly a quality of being which is depressed alienated cut off or whatever but if you if you reach out and you see what's there and respond in the best possible way you start to live in the world of reality and then you you can test this for yourself and next time maybe we can go over that it's brilliant because it's the quickest
1: way it's the quickest um line from ourselves into true connection and harmonious relationships with the world and everyone in it is simply by being in it and being proactive
0: yes Correct. and can i just say one thing before we end yeah when we look at self-improvement we can go oh my god i've got so much to do oh, it's too much that's not the way to look at it because that's you've gone into your head and you've got into ideals and all that stuff we're not interested in self-ideals improving myself i'm interested in improving my conduct <laughs> so what I'm, and I'm i'm going to do it one moment at a time so each moment like in a moment in the hourglass of sand i'm going to just do this as one moment the best i can then the next moment the best i can the next moment That's all I'm going to concentrate. I'm not going to worry about the whole bead project or the RJ project. I'm going to practice living rightly, which means I want to be alive to what's happening in front of me. And I want to respond to that in the light of goodwill and concern. When I do that, I am living happily. And there is an inevitable result that goes along with that
1: so just to wrap that up don't be so concerned with our psychology or our feelings be more concerned with how we're actually being in the world how we are living in the world yes
0: bead where do we find you um i've got a i've just uh, got a website called um being being free while living.org. And also another website called manability.com.au.
1: And we'll put that in the show notes. So don't worry about trying to spell that out. That'll be available for everyone that's listening and watching. Okay. All right, B. Again, thank you so much for your time. And I'm sure I'll be talking to you later on this week. It's a pleasure, RJ.
0: Bye-bye.